Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you that you have given us a chance to come before you together, in person, Lord. Father, this is your house, Lord. Father, we should be feeling excited. We should be feeling joy, Lord. But we should be feeling it because we are in your presence. Lord, we ask you this evening to open up your word to us. Lord, teach us your truths. Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us this evening. Father, help us to express ourselves tonight, Lord. Help us to come to worship you, Lord. Let us not be afraid to worship you, Father. Let us worship you in response to your word. Father, you are welcome here, Lord, and you are welcome in our hearts. Amen. Well, this evening I'm going to talk to you about, or from, the book of Revelation. Listen to the groans of the heart. Now, I've I've preached on this before from Revelation, and it never fails to get people a little on edge because people don't understand the book of Revelation. And I'm not saying that I understand it fully either. I don't. And I don't know anyone, professor, or anything else that does too. No one agrees. It's just one of those books. But that doesn't mean to say that we can't learn from it. Because we can. Now, the book of Revelation was written down by John. John, the disciple of Christ, the one that wrote John's Gospel, the same John. And it was a revelation to him. It was a vision given to him. And if you've got the red-letter Bible, you will notice that in the book of Revelation, most of it is written in red. Because this is Jesus speaking. Now you'll notice in Paul's books you don't get much red. I don't think you get any red in Paul's books, actually. But in John's you do, because this is Jesus speaking directly to us. Now I want to speak to you on chapter 2. Just a little bit. This is the letters... When Jesus appears to John, he gives John a message to send to the churches around the area that John was living. And the first was to Ephesus. It was in Asia Minor. It's now Turkey. This is Turkey we're talking about here. I'll just read from that. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and you have found them false. 
you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. I'm going to stop there. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. So who were the Ephesians? Well, we find out about them in Acts. It's quite a big chunk of one of the chapters in Acts talking about the people of Ephesus and Paul's mission there. If we go to Acts, as if by magic, we look at chapter 19. Paul's on his, one of his little uh, tours around the vicinity. And we find out that Paul has been making waves. He's been upsetting people because that's what Paul does. He upsets people. Now, we don't know many numbers, but we know there were a great many people in Ephesus, in that vicinity, that came to know the Lord because of Paul's teaching. He was teaching anywhere he could. They had a theatre in Ephesus that could hold, I think it was 24 or 25,000 people. Massive, massive theatre. Paul would speak there anywhere where anyone would listen. And he converted people. People came to know Jesus. Now, in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. You heard the seven wonders of the world? The hanging gardens of Babylon, and then there's this uh, one in Ephesus, which is the, like this statue of Artemis. And then there's the, I don't know, the biggest loaf in the world, somewhere over there, the pyramids. Um, some other stuff. I can't remember what they were. It's not important. There was that there because... Ephesus was a very, very important place for this god, Artemis, this female god. And in Ephesus, there were silversmiths. Now, these silversmiths would make idols. They'd make silver statues of the goddess Artemis. And they made a very very good living because you couldn't go there without getting one of these idols it's a bit like going to Blackpool in the 1970s and buying a kiss me quick hat it's a bit like going to Brighton for the first time and not buying a stick of rock you go there you buy one of these little idols or if you're very rich you buy a big idol and you have to buy them in silver. So the silversmiths were making a roaring trade. They had it in the bag. They had a captive audience. People would come from far and wide just to be amongst this city, these people, this special holy place of the goddess Artemis. So then Paul turns up and starts converting 
hundreds, maybe thousands of people, what happens then? What do they stop doing? They stop buying idols. And if they stop buying idols, you've got all these people not making money anymore. So when Paul's speaking at this theatre, this guy, Demetrius, turns up and he is not a happy bunny. And he's got together with some of his other silversmith mates and tried to instigate a riot. Let's just read you a bit. About the time there arose a great disturbance about the way, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. Notice the order in which he says that there. We're going to lose money. Oh, and, and our goddess might be, uh, might be discredited. What's important, really, in this man's heart? Money. So these people, these converts, Paul hasn't been there that long, right? But he's converting people, and they are instantly stopping buying these idols. It's not like a trickle. They haven't just gone well, I'll just buy one, because I usually do. These people have just done a complete 180. Not, not doing it anymore. It's almost instant. What could happen to someone that would stop their behavior that quickly? Fairly easy to understand what that was. It was the gospel. These people heard the gospel, given by Paul, and they changed their lives instantly. They fell in love with Christ. Their lives were changed so rapidly, so quickly, that people started noticing that their income was dropping very, very quickly. You've forgotten your first love, Jesus was saying to the Ephesians. You've forgotten your first love. Does he say they've done anything really bad in Revelations? No. What about if we go to the letter to the Ephesians? What if we read that? Does it say anything, you've done this, you've done that? You know, like in Corinthians and a lot of the other ones that Paul wrote, he was writing for a specific reason. He was writing to these churches because he'd heard news He'd give the usual greeting and then say, oh, by the way, I've heard that you've been doing this. 
That needs to stop. You can't do that anymore. But in Ephesians, he doesn't address any actual single problems. In fact, Ephesians, if you read it, it's a very, very encouraging book. Now, could we say that Paul obviously hasn't heard anything bad coming from that church at the time? We probably could. We probably could say that. We could also see that Ephesians is a letter given to all of the churches in Ephesus. There wasn't just one, there was lots of churches in Ephesus and around that area, that whole region. There would have been lots of churches because there were lots of people. So it makes sense to send out a kind of flyer, a text to give these churches so that now they're all united, they're all one in Christ, they all know what they should be doing. talks about the armour of God, doesn't it? How to live a good Christian life. God's marvellous plan for the Gentiles. That unity and maturity. You've been made alive in Christ. The Jew and Gentile have been reconciled, brought together under one. Ephesians is a wonderful book. I suggest you read it all in one hit. Because that's what they would have done. They would have been so desperate. Don't forget, these people didn't have this book. So Paul had to write to them to give them something that they could read. Something that could be explained to them. And they were eager for it. I can almost imagine them just like, Oh, we've got this message. This message has come through. What is it? And then you listen to the Ephesians letter. And it's stunning, beautiful, so encouraging. And if we go back to Revelations and we look to see what Jesus is actually saying about them. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. These people have been working hard. They've had this letter They've been digging around in Scripture. They've been doing the work. They've been changing lives. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. So we can see there that these people have turned away from sin. He's not holding anything against them at this point. You've done it. You've turned away from sin. You're working hard. You've tested those that claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them false. Paul was very concerned with the amount of people that were going around preaching a false gospel. And these people, through study, through diligence, through praying in the Spirit, seeking God, have wheedled out the liars, the false teachers. These people are good, solid. Christians, these people are clever. They test people. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name. Now, they weren't actually persecuted in Ephesus, not really, not to the extent that some were in other parts, but 
they obviously did face some sort of persecution light. They've definitely suffered hardships for his name, and I'm sure many of us have suffered hardships in the name of Christ. And they haven't grown weary. Now that's a telling one as well. They haven't grown weary. Why have they not grown weary? Who's, a, who's hands up if you've grown weary? Why have these people not grown weary? These people knew how to look after themselves. Scripturally. Relationship-wise with God. These people worked out their faith. They fed themselves spiritually. And if you don't do that, you will grow weary. You will be exhausted. But these people didn't. These people were amazing. Yet, I hold this against you. Now, when, you go, when you're involved in a company and you have these awful things, these appraisals, right? if you've ever been in an appraisal, they're a nightmare. But they all, they all follow a similar standard. You're welcomed in and, you, and they say all the positive stuff first. We think you are amazing. You've done this, you've done this, you've done this. Oh, wow, that was amazing. But, and there's the punch. This is an area you need to look at. Because you don't like taking criticisms, do you? I don't. It's difficult to hear criticism, whether it's true or false. So when someone starts in a meeting and you, you walk in and they go, you haven't done this right. What do you think you're playing at? You need to sort this out. What's this? So it sets the tone for the whole meeting then, doesn't it? You're on the back foot. You're under attack from the off. So in these meetings, let's get the positive stuff done first. Let's build you up. Let's edify you. There's a good word, a good biblical word, edify. Let's build you up so that when we do actually give you some little lesson about what is actually needed from you, that you, things you're struggling with, you're not going to be too disheartened. Now, Jesus doesn't want to crush these people. He wants to educate them, and he wants to move them forward. You don't turn up to a guy in a vision and lay out a long list of stuff to crush someone and undo all the good work that has been going on. Jesus doesn't do that. There's no condemnation in Christ. But there is growth. And that takes hard work, and sometimes you will get stuff wrong. And when you do do stuff wrong, you need to be told. What is it that these people did wrong? They forgot the love they first had. That love that turned them away from idolatry, turned them away from their lives of sin. They had the zeal, a passion for the word, for changing not only their lives, but the people around them. Now we could say, well, perhaps they've gone a little bit like the Pharisees. 
we could say that. We could say that maybe they're all about the study. They're all about book smarts and their practice. You know, where the rubber hits the road, the loving people. Maybe that's where they're going a bit wrong. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. So there he's sort of saying, I'm going I'm to remove the honour that you have, the, the place that you have. I will take this church apart, piece by piece, if you do not repent. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Very rare Jesus says he hates things, by the way. The Nicolaitans were a bunch of people who believed a certain thing. They were Christians, but they kind of... Well, there was a lot of... In the temples around the, of other gods, they had this thing called temple prostitution. So you would go to the church and you would just have sex with lots of people and, you know, kind of, let's all worship God, yay, get your pants off, that kind of stuff. Now, when you become a Christian, you're not allowed to do that. But they kind of went, well, we've been forgiven our sins. God is in us. We know that. He's for us. Our salvation is secure. So, woo, party. Yeah. Nowadays, they're called kind of carnal Christians. They go, well, I've been saved. I can do whatever I want, and I'm still going to go to heaven. Um, no. So they spotted that and they said, no, no thank you. We're not having any of that, thank you very much. We're going to turn away from that and you are not coming anywhere near us because you are blaspheming the name of Christ. So they did that bit. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They've got it all at stake here. They need to return to their first love, the passion they had at the beginning. Not looking too deeply into things, not getting carried away with book smarts and knowing stuff, they need Jesus in a very personal way. They need to recapture the love. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, 
always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. All this is dust in the wind. It means nothing. The lives you have, the things you do mean nothing if you don't have love. Jesus was really pleased with the things they'd been doing, but they lost sight of the point. And the point is love. Love is everything. Christ is love. God is love. Now for us here, now, we've kind of lost a bit of that. I know I have. We get caught up with life. We get caught up with work. We get caught up with relationships. We get caught up with the things that annoy us. And they take precedence over our lives. I put a thing on the WhatsApp group today about polarization. Polarization means to have two opposing or opposite things. Now, I was thinking this morning about the North Pole and the South Pole and that term, polar opposites. Oh, those two people, they're polar opposites. He's really lovely and she's really horrible. Polar opposites. We use that phrase all the time. Why? If you look at the poles, the north and the south, to be honest, they look pretty much the same. They're both covered in snow, they're both cold. They've got icebergs. Not many people want to live there. If I showed you two pictures taken, one from the north and one from the south, you would not be able to tell the difference. And yet we go polar opposites. Because as a species, as people, we choose to focus on the things that divide rather than the things we share in common. We naturally go to the things that divide. We do it all the time. As brothers and sisters in Christ we will naturally look to the things that divide rather than the things we share. You do it, I do it. Now going back to our passage in Revelation where we talk about you have lost the love that you once had. I want you to go back to, if you can remember it, if it happened that way, go back to the time you became a Christian, when you first realised who Christ was. Did you care about anything else in that moment? No? Did you care that the polarised caps were melting in that moment when you first realised who Christ was? Did you care that you don't like semolina, yet you were forced to eat it? that day 
Did you care about anything other than Christ in that moment? Was, was there anything other than Christ in that moment when you first laid eyes on him, either spiritually or physically, when you first realized who Christ is and what he did for you? Was there anything else in this world in that moment? Absolutely nothing. When you realize the sin that you've been doing, when you're in, when you're, before you're a Christian, when you realize that you've had a terrible life and you see that pattern of behavior going over and over again, all of a sudden you find out who Christ was, that he was a man, but also God, that he came to us to die. That was his purpose. He tried to teach us, and he did exceptionally well. But his purpose was to pay the price of our sins. Now, nothing else could have paid that price. We could have sacrificed all the lambs and goats and bulls in the world. It wouldn't have covered it. We could have mined the gold and given it to God. It still wouldn't cover it. You could go to every planet in the universe, take every precious stone and metal, and it still wouldn't cover the cost. Because the price was God's to pay. Only God can pay the price of sin. There is nothing we can do. We don't deserve his grace. But because of his grace, he gives us love. So much love that he is willing to die so that we can be back in his presence. And in that moment when you first realize that, you don't need to read the Bible you don't need to have a vast amount of knowledge. You just need to know who he is, what he did, and that's it. And when you know those two things, you will never be more sorry for the hurt and the pain that you have caused and felt in your life. Because to know Jesus and to love Jesus is the whole package. There is love aplenty, but there is pain. But when you deal with that pain, the love rushes in and replaces it. And all of a sudden, the things that caused you pain don't anymore. Some things still will. But if you work hard, if you pray hard, things might get better. Jesus is calling this amazing, wonderful church in Ephesus and in something to return to the love they once had for him. Stop thinking about what you can do. Stop thinking about what you can give. Go back and revisit 
that time when you loved him more than anything else on this planet. Because that's where he wants us to live every day. Not just on special occasions. He wants you to live in that moment and have that knowledge in your heart and in your head and in your soul every day. Now, you will do great things if you can do that. But you won't do them because you choose to do them. You'll do them because you just can't help yourself. Faith will move you to do things that you would never think you could do. Christ was telling the Ephesians, you need to go back to that moment when you first know me. Because that love, that power, that faith will move you to do ever more things. And we can only imagine what the people in Ephesus thought when they heard this vision or they read this vision that was given to them. I imagine they felt convicted. It's very easy to turn church into a business for doing good things. Damn easy. All of a sudden you become a charity and you give because that's what you just do. No. That's not what Jesus is saying here. By all means, do good things, help your community, be wonderful people, yes. But you need to be in love with Christ. 